This week I was reading about some fascinating research done by a professor at Northwestern University involving Olympic athletes. Now here's a picture of some athletes. This is from the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. And the research showed that athletes who won a bronze medal were happier than athletes who won a silver medal. And here's why. Silver medalists tend to focus on how close they came to winning a gold medal, and so they weren't happy that they only got a silver medal. But bronze medalists, on the other hand, tended to focus on how close they came not to winning a medal at all, and so they were just happy to have a medal. Now, this research points out an intriguing facet of human nature. What you choose to focus on determines your reality. What we choose to focus on determines our reality. You see, how we feel is not necessarily determined by objective circumstances. If that were true, silver medalists would be happier than bronze medalists because objectively they had achieved more. But so often how we feel is not determined by objective circumstances. How we feel is determined by our subjective focus. For example, we probably all know people who can find something good to focus on even in the worst of circumstances. Isn't that true? Do you know anybody like that? Well, conversely, we probably all know people who can find something bad to focus on even in the best of circumstances. And you could say that generally speaking, there are two kinds of people in the world, complainers and worshipers. And here's what I mean. Complainers can always find something to complain about no matter what the circumstances. Worshipers can always find something to praise God about no matter what the circumstances. Now, today we're continuing our series on worship. And by the way, if you have an interest in serving on our worship team as a musician or a vocalist, here's what you can do. You can go to our website, and on our website is divided basically into three areas, church, community, and world. And you need to click on church, and that'll take you to a page that has documents and forms. You can read about the worship team and the guidelines, and then you can actually complete an online worship team questionnaire, and then just hit submit, and that'll go to our worship leader, Jeff Dunn. So I just wanted to let you know that. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen that worship involves turning our attention away from ourselves toward God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And last week we looked at Psalm 29, and it talks about hearing the voice of God, and that as we encounter God in worship, He gives us two things, two great benefits, strength and peace. Now, why is that so important? Because in this world, we will always face difficult circumstances. Some of you right now are going through some big challenges in your life, and it should come as no surprise because Jesus told us In this world, you will have what? You will have trouble, but he quickly added, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. And worship, true worship, enables us to face difficult circumstances with hope. Because in worship, who do we focus on? We focus on God. And we're reminded that God is in charge, and that God cares about us, and that God's purpose is going to prevail no matter what. And this is extremely important for us, not just as individuals, but also as a church family. And that's because right now we're living in a time of great challenge in our nation. I read an article this week about the moral collapse of America. And it said this, it pointed out some sobering statistics about our country. The U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the industrialized world. America has the highest divorce rate in the world. 
It's estimated that 89% of all pornography in the world is produced in the U.S. In America, approximately one out of three children live in a home without a dad. An all-time high of 59% of Americans believe that the traditional definition of marriage needs to be changed. America has the highest incarceration rate and the largest total prison population in the world. The number of Americans with no religious affiliation has grown by 25% in the past five years. And finally, listen carefully to this, 60% of all Christians aged 15 to 29 are no longer active in any church. Now, why do I share this information with you? And here's the reason, because how you react to these facts depends on your focus. I was reading a blog by a well-known Christian writer and the sense of his blog was simply this, that, that we're losing the battle in our culture. And so what we need to do is just retreat. We need to basically withdraw from culture and just hope that Jesus comes back soon. Well, I'll tell you what, I hope Jesus comes back soon. But I don't believe Jesus left us here without a purpose. In fact, he was clear, wasn't he? He said that we we're supposed to go into all the world and do what? To make disciples. Jesus calls us to advance, not to retreat. And his marching orders have never changed. I've been reading a book by Pastor Steve Gaines, and it has an interesting title. It's called, When God Comes to Church. Think about that, When God Comes to Church. And he says this, We need God back in our schools and government, but more than that, we need God back in our churches. When he comes, he will bring genuine revival and spiritual awakening, which is our nation's greatest need. Now, why is it so important to understand worship? Why have we been spending these weeks on worship? Because worship brings revival. It brings renewal, which is not only our nation's greatest need, church, it is our greatest need, not only as a church, but as individuals. And let me say this, revival does not begin here. Revival begins here. Revival doesn't begin in the White House. It begins in God's house when God's people get serious about worshiping Him. Now look at the statement on your outline. It says this, In worship, we give our hearts to God, and He in turn shares His heart with us. Worship is a heart-to-heart connection between God and His people. Now here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. Again, it's on your outline. What kind of heart do we need to worship fully so that we can experience God's presence and God's power in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our nation. Now, when it comes to experiencing the presence of God, we know the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent. What does that mean? God is everywhere all the time. But there are times when God makes his presence known to his people in very unmistakable ways. And we find an example of that in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. It describes a worship service. Now just imagine being there and seeing this happen. It says, when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, sort of like what happens here on a Sunday morning, and when they praise the Lord saying, indeed, he is good and his loving kindness is everlasting, this is what happens. It says, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Can you imagine being there and seeing this happen? The glory of God fills this this place where God's people are worshiping? You know, church, God never changes. And God longs, 
to display his glory and his power to us. I remember seeing a cartoon one time. It was a lady, and she's talking to her friend. This is in church, and uh, she's looking at the program, and she says, boy, I sure hope God does something today that's not in the bulletin. You know, God can't be confined to a bulletin, can he? You can't put God in a box. God is God. And the fact is we need to see God's presence and God's power when we come to worship him. The question is, what kind of heart do we need to have so that God will reveal himself to us, so that God will meet us and enable us to experience his power and his presence and his glory? Well, there's a verse in the Old Testament that really gives us the answer. And it's a verse where God is speaking to Solomon, one of the kings of Israel. And God knows the hearts of his people. He knows how prone his people are to wander away from him. And this is what God says. This is in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is an incredible promise by God. And by the way, um, in many of our nation's presidential inaugurations, you know when they have the swearing-in ceremony and there's an open Bible? This is the verse the Bible is open to. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Now, just look at the first phrase. It says, if my people... Well, who's God talking about? Well, in the original context, it's the nation of Israel. They're God's people. But who are God's people today? Everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ has been adopted into God's family. doesn't matter what nation you're from, you're still a part of God's family. So we are God's people, if my people who are called by my name. And notice the end. It says that God is going to heal their land. What is that about? Well, at the time that this is written, the people of Israel have been taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. And this is because they disobeyed God. And the person who's writing this book of Second Chronicles wants to encourage them, to remind them that God has promised that if they will turn back to God, God will turn back to them and heal their land, which means that when they grow crops, you know, bugs won't eat their plants and, and they'll be restored to economic prosperity. And one of the things that we need to realize when we read the Old Testament is that when God makes promises to his people, the nation of Israel, when you become a believer, when you're adopted into God's family, you inherit those very promises. And listen, if you're here today just checking out Christianity, I'm glad you're here because I hope this message will help you understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Church, it's clear that America is a nation in need of serious healing, and that healing will only take place as we come back to God with all of our heart. So here's the question again. What kind of heart do we need to experience God's power and God's presence? And here's the first thing I want you to see. It's on your outline. We need a humble heart that prays. A humble heart that prays. Look at this verse again. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. This week I found a website that had prayers of different American presidents. And as I was reading these, these prayers, it was such a great reminder that even though there are people who want to revise our national history, the fact is that many of our founding fathers were fully devoted followers of Christ. And they wanted Christians to be able to express and pursue their faith in the public square. And that's not prohibited anywhere in the Constitution. Now let me just share briefly one of the prayers that I read this week from one of our founding fathers. And just imagine the kind of 
reaction that you would get in the press if a president today prayed a prayer like this. O eternal and everlasting God, increase my faith in the promises of the gospel. Give me repentance from dead works. Pardon my wanderings and direct my thoughts unto yourself, the God of my salvation. Teach me how to live in your fear, labor in your service, and ever to run in the ways of your commandments. Daily frame me more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. That prayer was prayed by George Washington, one of our founding fathers. Now, isn't it interesting when the Bible talks about humility and pride that it says this, God opposes the proud, but what does he give to the humble? Do you know? Grace. He gives us grace. And why is that the case? Well, because when you're humble, you know how much you need God, and therefore you pray and ask God for the things that you need. And that's where revival really starts, with a heart that is humble, that is willing to engage with God. So that's the first thing that we need, a humble heart, that prays. And here's the second thing we need, a hungry heart that seeks God. A hungry heart that seeks God. Look at this verse again. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and notice this next phrase, and seek my face. Seek my face. When a baby comes into the world, there's all kinds of things that babies need. Isn't that true? Some of you are parents of small children. And they need food and clothing and shelter and diaper changes quite often. But here's something else that a baby needs. Another human face. Now that's a cute picture, isn't it? That baby smiling and looking into its mom's face. When a, when a baby looks into its mother's face, it realizes that somebody cares. That somebody is watching. That somebody's going to react to what they do. Now in the world of psychology, this is called attunement. The baby understands that it's possible to be connected with or in tune with another human being. And that's because that's how God made us, with this need for connection. We have a need to be connected not only with other people, but we have a need to be connected with God, to be in tune with God. And for the people of Israel, their greatest desire, their greatest joy, was when God turned his face toward them. Because they knew that when God turned his face toward them, that meant that God is watching, that God cares about everything that's going on in our lives. That when we do something, God will respond. In fact, God himself gave words to Moses to give to Aaron and the priest to bless God's people during worship. And these are words that many of you are familiar with. Look at these words. The Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. We said before that God wants us to focus on him for this reason. Because he's always focused on us. And God wants us to seek his face. Now what kind of heart do you need to seek God's face? You need a heart that's hungry for God. Now imagine this. Imagine that I invite you to my house for dinner tonight. And... You, um, you skip lunch today, and so you're getting kind of hungry when it's dinner time. And so we're sitting there on the couch, and my wife, Chris, is making this, this great dinner. Maybe she's making, like, lasagna. And you can smell it cooking, and, uh, and so we're talking. Now, when Chris puts the food on the table and says, hey, it's time to eat, do you think I have to convince you to get up and come to the table? Do I have to plead with you or, you know, kind of twist your arm? Do you think so? No. When you're hungry, you want to eat. So you're just going to get up and you're probably going to run to the dinner table. God wants us 
to be hungry for him. He wants us to want to spend time with him. He wants us to have a desire to pray. He wants us to have a deep desire to worship him. That's what it means to seek his face. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here's the promise. They shall be filled. They will be satisfied. And when I read that verse, I think about, about Mick Jagger. Some of you are what? You think about Mick Jagger? Well, yeah, you know his signature, signature song, I Can't Get No What? Satisfaction. Well, that's not just Mick's problem. That is a statement about the human condition because inside every human heart is a God-shaped vacuum. God has given us a hunger that only he can fill. But let me ask you this. What kind of appetite do you have for God today? What kind of appetite did you have this morning for worship? Now think about this. What happens in your life? Let's say that you spend a day and you don't pray or you don't read the Bible. Do you notice? Does it make any real difference to you? Or what if that turns into two days or three days or a week or even longer? You know, one of the things that that often affects our spiritual appetite is our circumstances. Because this is what can happen. You know, when life is... Well, it's kind of smooth sailing, no significant challenges, not a lot of pain or, or distress or challenge. Sometimes that affects our appetite for God. And we say, you know, I'm doing fine. F-I-N-E. Somebody share with me what that acronym sometimes stands for. Have you heard this? Fearful, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. How are you doing? I'm fine. Yeah, I'll bet you are. Sometimes I say I'm fine, but it's really the former and not the latter. But here's the deal, church. No matter what you're going through, no matter what the condition of your heart, God says, come to me and pour out your heart. Seek my face. And listen, we talked about a humble heart that prays. One of the things that we can pray is that God would give us a growing desire for him so that we might learn how to truly worship him and bring joy to his heart. Okay, quick review. What kind of heart do we need? First of all, we need a, tell me up. What kind of heart? Humble heart that prays. Secondly, a... Hungry heart that seeks God. And here's the third thing. We need a holy heart that turns back to God. And here's how this verse continues. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and here's the next condition that God gives us, turn from their wicked ways. Now certainly as you read the Bible, God's people go through these cycles you know, at one point, they're, they're doing what God wants. They're close to God, and then they just they go off the path. And, and God knows that. He knows that we have a heart that pulls us away from his purpose and his plan. And there's a word for when we get right with God. It's the word repentance. And it really is sort of like a moral U-turn. You know, you're moving away from God, and God gets your attention often through circumstances, and then you just make a U-turn, and you start heading back toward God. That's what repentance is all about. And this was the essential message of Jesus Christ. You know, he had a very compelling message. Repent and believe what? The good news. That was what Jesus preached. And Jesus preached not just to individuals. He preached to groups of people. He preached to the religious leaders of a nation because he knew that the nation needed to repent. And I was thinking this week as I was watching the news, America is a nation in serious need of repentance. 
because we are drifting further and further away from God. What does God want? He wants us to turn around. He wants us to make a moral U-turn. And if you're a believer this morning, you understand that because that's how you became a follower of Jesus Christ. You are moving away from God. And that's because we come into this world with a heart that pulls us away from God, a heart where we don't love God the way we should, we don't love our neighbor as ourself, and the Bible calls that sin. And the reality is this, our sin separates us from God because God is holy. And because God is just, he has to punish every sin we've ever committed, and that just punishment is to die and to be separated from God forever. And we know that that is bad news. There's no doubt about that. Apart from God's intervention, we're going to spend eternity apart from God and apart from his benevolent presence in a horrible place that Jesus talked about, a place called hell. But God doesn't want us to perish. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish. That's what Jesus desires so deeply, is for us to have our relationship with God restored. And so this is what happens. God the Father sends God the Son to earth in the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes to our world, and he lives a perfect life, a life we could never live. And he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and hung on a cross And as you've heard me say many times, on the cross, God is willing to do this. He's willing to put our sin and our rebellion on Jesus Christ. I had a really interesting conversation with one of our students this morning between services, and the student asked me this question, and I've never been asked this question before. Did Jesus ever feel guilt? Because he never did anything wrong. And I said, you know what? That's a great question. And here's what I think. When Jesus was on the cross and God put our sin on Jesus, he felt more guilt than anyone has ever imagined because the guilt of our sin was placed on him. In fact, it says that he was crushed for our sin, for our iniquities. And Jesus dies the death that we deserved. But here's what God says. If you will trust my son, if you will believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, then I will give you credit for his perfect life. And there's the grand transaction. Our sin is placed on Jesus and we are given his perfect record of obedience through faith. And that's what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. But friends, this is so important. Repentance, repentance is not a one-time deal. Yeah, I became a Christian and I remember I repented back in 1973. Haven't repented since, but I remember then, boy, I changed my mind. You know, God needs to change our mind how often? All the time. God needs to renew our minds so that we don't believe the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies that we hear from other people, or the lies of our culture. And here's why that is so critically important. Because what you believe determines how you behave. What you believe ultimately will determine how you behave. And that's true not just of people as individuals. That's true of the conduct of a nation. And friends, here's the deal. When we believe... What God says about the sanctity of human life, it affects how we behave when it comes to the issue of the sanctity of human life. When we believe what God says about the definition of marriage, it changes how we behave when it comes to the definition of marriage. When we believe what God says about anything, it changes our behavior. And one of the things that's really interesting as you read the Old Testament is how God addresses what people believe about money, about financial resources. And I was thinking, you know, isn't that one of the the premier issues in our nation, our national economy. I mean, our debt is unbelievable. And we're certainly not going in the right direction. And, and we all know this. You know, we have a, 
a class called Financial Peace University, and it's, it's great material because so many Americans are facing financial challenges. I spoke with several couples this week, and it was a recurrent theme. They're struggling financially. They're under a lot of pressure, and that affects their marriage and their family. And I get that. I understand that. And so the, the question that you can, you can almost hear is, what do we do? What do we do about this? And here's my answer. Worship. Worship. And here's what I mean. When we worship God, we give God first place in our life. And you see, that's really the answer to every struggle that we face, isn't it? Because think about this. If you want God's blessing on any area of your life, what do you need to do? Put God first. If you want God to bless your marriage, put God first in your marriage. If you want God to bless your business, put God first in your business. If you want God to bless your finances, you've got to handle your finances the way that God says. Now, what's really intriguing is that when the nation of Israel drifts away from God, he says, return to me. And he's very specific about how that's going to happen. Now, take a look at this passage. We're just going to go through this briefly. It's from Malachi chapter 3. This is God speaking to his people, and he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He's talking about Israel. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. This is what we talked about, this cycle of disobedience. And then God says this, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. That's quite a promise, isn't it? And then God anticipates the question in Israel's mind. And that's how the passage continues. But you ask, how are we to return? Okay, God, it's great that you've promised if we return to you, you're going to return to us, but how should we return? And this seems like kind of a crazy answer that God gives. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Now, I was telling the people at first service I, I heard Anthony Evans. He's a pastor. Do any of you know Anthony Evans? Um, he was preaching on the radio one night. I was driving home. And he was talking about this passage in Malachi. And he was telling the people in his church, listen. And if you've ever heard him, boy, he can just really, really preach. And he was, uh, he was saying, listen, if you're, if you're driving around in a big fancy car and you're not tithing, that's a stolen car. And you are robbing God. And I thought, whoa, man, that's kind of in-your-face preaching, and, but he wasn't, he wasn't finished. And he said, listen, you ladies, if you're wearing really expensive clothes, if you have a, a, a fur coat and you're not tithing, that is a stolen fur coat and you are robbing God. And I thought to myself, this guy's going to get fired. He can't preach like that. Of course, he's been in his church for decades. And then I realized, well, he's not worried about getting fired, is he? What he's concerned about is getting his congregation fired up. Because he wants God's best for them. He wants to see God pour out his power and his presence on that congregation. And what's so intriguing, again, this is how this continues. This is God speaking in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. In the Old Testament, the tithe took care of the priest. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see... If I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Church tithing, which is giving 10% back to God, is really a matter of repentance. Remember, repentance means to change your mind. And when you change your mind about 
God providing for you. When you trust him enough, it changes how you behave. And Jesus himself affirmed this, this idea of tithing in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, if you want to check that out. But here's the question. Why is tithing such a big deal to God? He doesn't need our, our money. He doesn't need our stuff. Why is it such a big deal? And here's the reason. God wants you to trust him. It's that simple. And when you give the way that God tells you to give, it's evidence that you've trusted God. And the Bible says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But in order to trust God, you've got to know who he is. You've got to believe his promises. You know, sometimes in talking with other pastors, um, the topic of giving comes up. And I've come to the, the conclusion that the giving capacity of a church is really dependent on this, how well a church knows God. Now think about that. If a church really knows God well, they will trust God. They will trust God a lot. In fact, they will trust God enough to handle their finances his way. And church, you've heard me say this so many times. When it comes to giving, when it comes to money, um, the focus is not on what I want from you. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for all of us. Because if you notice what God says here, return to me and I will return to you. Can you imagine what would happen in the American church if people returned to God with the kind of heart that we've talked about? A humble heart, a hungry heart, a holy heart that's willing to obey God and do things his way. And just in this matter of giving, what would happen if Christians in America would actually take God seriously and put him to the test and tithe? George Barna, who's done a lot of research for the church, pointed out that in the last few years, the percentage of Christians who tithe has dropped from 7% to 4%. So about 4% of Christians in America tithe. Now, he contrasted that with something that's pretty amazing. He said that 90% of Mormons tithe. 90%? Wow, that's a lot. And I thought, what would happen if 90% of American Christians would tithe? I mean, what would that look like? Well, I believe that if that happened, God would pour out his power in unbelievable ways. There would be incredible revival in the church. And here's the thing. God wants us to pray for revival. He wants us to work for revival. If you study the history of America, there have been two really significant points of revival that turn this nation around, and I believe it can happen again. But where does revival start? It starts here. It starts in our hearts. There was a, a guy who was talking to his pastor, and he said, you know, pastor, I really want to see revival come. I'm really praying for revival. What, what can I do? What can I pray specifically? And the pastor said, okay, here's what you do. Take a piece of chalk and draw a six-foot circle. So the guy takes a piece of chalk, and he draws a six-foot circle. And the pastor says, go stand in the middle of the circle and pray for God to bring revival to everything in the circle. Isn't that true? We can't pray for revival for our nation unless we pray for revival for our own lives, our marriages, our families. And church, I long to see God do something that's not in the bulletin every week. I long to see God pour out his presence and his power. I long to see God do things that can't be explained apart from his power. And I have seen God at work. As I look back over the years that I've had the privilege to serve as your pastor, I have seen God do incredible things. You know, I've talked to the husbands and wives that were ready to just call it quits. 
And God saved their marriage. And it was his power that brought about reconciliation. I've seen people that were this close to dying because of an addiction. And God stepped in. And because of his great power, he healed their heart and healed their body. I've seen people who you never thought in a million years would become a follower of Jesus Christ because their heart was so hard. And I've seen God, by his power, soften that heart and a person decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. And church, I want to see that happen again and again in our church family. I want to see us make an incredible difference in this community. But how's that going to happen? It's going to happen depending on the condition of our hearts. And here's what I want to ask you to pray with me. That God will give us humble hearts that pray, hungry hearts that seek his face, and holy hearts that are willing to obey. Let's pray for that right now. Father, you've told us so clearly, so plainly, that if we want to experience your, your power in our lives, if we want to see you work in remarkable and incredible ways, We've got to come to you and pray. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to seek you. We've got to turn around, God. And so this morning, Father, I pray not only for for me, because I know that that's where revival has to start, God, in my heart, but I pray for the hearts of everyone here. I pray for our homes, God, for your revival to break out there. And God, you see what's happening in this nation, God. And I'm sure, God, that it breaks your heart. And I pray that it would break our hearts too. Break our hearts enough to do something. And God, it begins with prayer. It begins with worship. It begins with inviting you to come and and manifest your glory and your presence. And we pray that you would do that. And Lord, as we sing this last song, I, I pray that it would be an opportunity to remember that we need more than a song. We need a heart that worships Jesus. And we pray for that now in his name. Amen.